You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. Morning. My name is Susanna and um, I'm on the preaching team here at SCV. I'm actually married to Dan. Um, married to all those bad jokes, day in and day out. Joking. Uh, and we have a son, Killian. We've been coming to this church for the last three years, so that's me. Um, Okay, if you're new here, and there's definitely a handful of people who are new, welcome especially to you. Um, It will be helpful for you to know that we are actually reading through the Bible together, and we're focusing Sunday mornings on a book at a time. So you've stepped into this series. And if you're not new here, it will be helpful to hear that we will be finishing the Old Testament, Um, just in time for Christmas. So today we are in the book of Ruth. We're in the book of Ruth, and I wanted to actually highlight the title of that series that you stepped into if you're new or that you're bearing with us if you're not new here. And the title of the series is In Pursuit of a Family. Because we really want to grasp um, that scripture is the story of God reconciling himself to his creation. So the series is called In Pursuit of the Family. That's what we're calling reading through the whole Bible. And so before we even get into Ruth, we already know that her small story is going to fit into that big story. So let's keep that in mind. All right, so we're going to start with a little game I call Two Ruths and a Lie. And you are going to work out um, which two of these three statements are true and which one is not And before we go on, I'm going to give you a back of the book blurb for Ruth first. You know when you get a book and you can read a little blurb on the back and decide whether you want to go further? Well, I'm going to give you that just to orient you a little bit. So Hannah, if you go to that back of the book blurb, Ruth, if you don't know anything about Ruth or if you haven't read Ruth in a while, um, Ruth is a short story that follows a young woman who falls on hard times, but through a series of risks and sacrifices, eventually regains both family and fortune be probably $8.99 at Barnes & Noble. This is a short book, paperback. So that's Ruth. Okay, so let's go back to two Ruths and a lie. And you can work with the person next to you, or you can work by yourself, but I'm going to give you only about 20 seconds to figure out which of these things are Ruth, i.e. true, which two things are Ruth, and which one is a lie. So Ruth contains the names of four different boys in this church. Ruth was written by the prophet Samuel. Ruth was not Jewish. You can start talking, I'll give you 20 seconds, and then I'll tell you the answers. Okay, I'm going to give you a five, four, three, Two, one. Hannah, would you put up the answers, please? (gasps) Wow. All right. So I'm going to tell you the two Ruths and the lie. It is true that Ruth contains the names of four different boys in this church. There's a Judah. It's actually a land, not a person, but that doesn't count. doesn't matter. There's a Boaz, which hopefully most of you will know. There's a Killian. All right. Different spelling, you know, people spell killing wrong all the time. And then there's Perez, which is a shout out to Marcos, Marcos Perez. So there, that, was, that was a Ruth, that was true. There's four different boys named in this church. 
Ruth was written by the prophet Samuel is the lie. Now, it could have been written by Samuel, but the authorship is unknown. So if you said that was Ruth, it really wasn't right of you to say so. And then Ruth was not Jewish. She was a Moabite. Now, I'm going to give you an ancient map for some context of where she's from. So if you can see behind me, Ruth was from Moab, Moab in the bottom right corner. This was a kingdom east of the Dead Sea founded by the son of Abraham's nephew, Lot. His name was Moab, so we named it Moab. It's thought that the Moabites and Israelites could probably understand each other's languages, but we can hardly call them friends. They were actually in constant competition and conflict with each other. So that's where Ruth is from. And let's look at some more context uh, before we actually get into the plot. So here is where Ruth sits in with the rest of the Old Testament books and timeline. Can you see Ruth? I put a big star next to her. Can you see her? Okay, so she's right in the time of the judges. And the events in Judges occur in the, it's about 400 years between jo when Joshua dies, when the people reach the promised land, and the rise of Samuel and Saul and all the kings, etc. And everything you need to know about Judges, if you weren't here for the messages on Judges, is summed up by the last verse in the book of Judges. Uh, Hannah, next slide. The verse is, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. So... Thumbs up for that time or thumbs down? Thumbs down, for sure. So it can't be too shocking that Ruth, the next book after Judges in the Bible we have today, starts, uh, well, it was set in this sort of God-forsaken time, and it opens with this statement. So that second verse is the opening of Ruth, which comes after that last verse of Judges. In the days when the Judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, Sometimes in Old Testament narratives, uh, famine was a sign of God's judgment. But whether or not that famine was from God, uh, famine often in the Bible signaled change and a chance for a fresh start. So here we have Ruth opening with a famine, and that famine is kind of the catalyst for all the events in Ruth. So there's the opening. All right, now let's take a wider view uh, to the next slide. We want to also give you the picture that Ruth actually serves as an origin story for David, King David, and by default, for later, 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 Jesus Christ. And in doing so, the book of Ruth actually reveals something very crucial to understanding God's pursuit of a family, which we mentioned earlier. So if you can see those two genealogies, I'm going to show you. The one on the left is the genealogy that is found in the book of Ruth, and the one on the right is actually found in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you can see there are a couple of names that are highlighted. Well, not by me, I actually did highlight them. But they should be highlighted to you because they're the only names in there that are uh, women and people who aren't Jewish, foreigners. And by the way, that was an exceptional thing to do in ancient genealogy, to put woman in there, not just woman, but foreign woman. And then look at that punchline, both of them. All these names, boop, a woman, boop, a foreigner, do 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 King David, King David, bam. So God is weaving in Gentiles, the other, the alien, the nations. Even back then, when he had chosen his people, he was weaving in others so that they are an irreplaceable part of his story. He's putting them into his family tree. And so we need to remember about that about Ruth. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in his introduction. He says, next slide, Hannah, 
The great names in the plot that climaxes at Sinai, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and the great names in the sequel, Joshua, Samuel, David, Solomon, can be intimidating to ordinary, random individuals. But the story of Ruth is proof to the contrary. She is the inconsequential outsider whose life turns out to be essential for telling the complete story of God's way among us. So in terms of the characters of the Old Testament, Ruth is not a big name, at least at first glance, but that's exactly the point. So keeping this understanding of this backdrop of Ruth um, and the key role God cast her in, let's move into the details of the story itself. Of course, I have made it a challenge, people. I'm not just going to sit here and tell you the story. What I want you to do is work together, not too big of a group, that wouldn't be fair, but you can work with someone else next to you to unscramble the storyline. So you can see I have a series of five pictures, and I've put numbers on them. And what I want you to do is work out what the order should be. What should actually be one, what should be two, what should be three, what should be four, what should be five, in terms of how they actually happen in the story. So there's five pictures from the story. They're in the wrong order. You need to work out, and you can write down on a piece of paper what order those numbers should actually be in to match how they occurred. Can you see enough? Woman in a field, two women looking sad, man with a sandal, two women with a baby, man looking surprised at a woman sleeping at his feet. Got it? All right, you have one minute. See if you can write down the, the order you think those numbers should actually be. How do those events take place in the story? Good luck. Man with a sandal. If you're online, you can grab a piece of scrap paper and give it a go as well. <laughs> give you a sniff back. I'm sniffing to ashes. Hmm. You're not allowed to look at the Bible. I should have said that. <laughs> okay, let's say 10 more seconds. Okay. Three, two, one. That's the buzzer. All right. So, Hannah, the big reveal. Here's the unscrambled scramble. It should be... That picture number two is first, picture number one is second, so we have two, one. Picture number five is third, picture number three is fourth, picture number four is fifth. So if you wrote down the numbers, two, one, five, three, four. So two women looking sad, woman in a field, man wakes up surprised with a woman sleeping at his feet, man with a sandal, two women with a new baby. 
Raise your hand if you got it. Two, one, five, three, four. Tim, what were the results? Good. All right. Anybody get it right? Amazing. Well done. Okay. So I was just checking what you remembered. All right. So the book of Ruth has four chapters, and each is presented as a different scene with a definite set, uh, sense of division. It's almost written like a, like a play. There's four, four different scenes, four different uh, acts, and they take place in four different places. So what I'm going to do is just briefly lead you through the story using these pictures and the, this sense of four and then a bonus of five. And then we're going to focus on one thing at the end that I feel like God wants to highlight and then move into ministry time. All right, so act one, if we could get the picture of uh, act one. Act one opens in Moab. So it doesn't open in Israel, it opens in Moab. And I'm going to put one quote from each of these scenes up there, but I'll explain a little bit before we look at that verse. So what you need to know is that there's a woman named Naomi, and she and her husband are Jewish, and they're from the tribe of Judah. And the book opens with them leaving Bethlehem because of a famine. And they go live in Moab because, well, there's false gods there, but there's also food. Um, they have two sons, one of which was named Killian, with a K, with an I, with an O, with an N, I understand. They're, they have two sons, and those two boys marry Moabite women while they're living abroad. Um, sadly, all three of the men die, and they leave three childless uh, widows behind them. And those women are now pretty poor, and they're extremely powerless because without the protection and provision of a husband or a male relative, they're in trouble. Naomi is struggling. Uh, she decides to go back home because she's heard God has lifted the famine there. So now there's food in Israel again. But Ruth insists on staying with her. Ruth really digs her her feet in, and she says that she's going to stay with Naomi, even though Ruth isn't Jewish, and she'll be a total outsider. And as a foreign woman, she could be easily exploited where she's going back. Um, Naomi really gives her the, the option, you know, you can go back, Ruth, start again back in Moab. You really don't have to do this. But this is what she says. Ruth says to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So that's what happens in Act 1. The events lead to the move to Moab, and events lead to the move back to Israel and Judah. All right, so then Act 2 opens in the fields of someone named Boaz. So Naomi and Ruth settle uh, back into life in Bethlehem, although they've had to sell some family property to survive this new situation on their own. Ruth starts gleaning in the fields because it's harvest time in Israel. It's actually they're, they're gleaning barley. I don't know if anyone's a barley fan. Um, and Levitical law instructed the Israelites to always leave some crops on the ground for those in need. So they were told to look out for the um, people who were unmarried, who were from another country, who were orphaned, who were in, in poverty. They were told to leave some extra bits on the ground. And so that's what Ruth does. She takes herself to a field and she begins to pick up the leftovers and gather them. And she ends up in Boaz's field. Uh, and he's obviously someone who embraces this Levitical law because his workers are leaving plenty behind them as they gather their own crops. And, and Ruth is able to get enough, more than enough, if she's working hard. Um, and here's the verse for that scene. So Ruth says to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. 
So it's not necessarily a guarantee that she would be received well in the field. So she went out, entered the field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, wink, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz. So there's this cheeky little phrase like, hmm, interesting that she ended up in the field of this guy, Boaz. And you'll see why that was a good choice for Ruth. Okay, act number three. Act number three opens, uh, so we've gone from Moab to the fields, and now we're in the house of Naomi, and then we're taken somewhere else to the threshing floor. So it turns out Boaz sees and hears some good things about Ruth, and he shows a special concern for her, and he actually ensures that she's safe, she has what she needs, and he's particularly concerned that she's protected from the other uh, men uh, around, around her. And after a time, Naomi, being the uh, shrewd mother-in-law that mother-in-laws can sometimes be, she comes up with this idea for how to connect Naomi and Boaz potentially more permanently. So she says to uh, Ruth, this is Naomi talking, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, here's a plot twist, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, and when Boaz lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. So this is her advice to Naomi. Now, this might sound to our modern ears like a very weird and very scandalous move to make on, on Ruth's part. But we need to understand that this uh, gesture was actually purely symbolic. What, what Ruth is doing here uh, by coming to where he is and by um, lying at his feet is she's actually asking uh, Boaz if he would become her new guardian and marry her. And we'll get, well, explain that system a little bit later. But she's putting herself sort of under his feet, so to speak, under his protection, under his uh, authority and asking him to respond. And Boaz responds well. Must have been the perfume. I don't know what she was wearing. And he's touched by her respect and kindness. He really has such a high regard for Ruth, and this uh, uh, furthers that. And he's actually open to her proposal, you know, to, to become uh, her, her caretaker, her guardian, her husband. And he reassures her that he'll sort out the details. And then Ruth slips back to her house uh, before anyone can see them together and think something improper took place. So they handle themselves very respectfully. He understands her gesture, what it symbolizes, and then they go part ways. So before we go to uh, scene four, I need you to understand why she could do that to Boaz. So let's look at this idea of something called a kinsman redeemer. Can you say that out loud? Kinsman, kinsman redeemer. Sometimes it's called a guardian redeemer. Now, uh, back in this time, this was actually a provision, again, that God made in Levitical law and the system he set up for his people, how they live, how they take care of each other, how they interact. And so a kinsman redeemer has to meet the qualifications on the next slide. Um, a kinsman redeemer needs to be a male relative. They uh, have a duty to preserve their relatives and their property. Um, a kinsman redeemer would pay off the debts of a relative who's in need at his own expense. A kinsman redeemer is required to ensure that this relative or these relatives got descendants. And here's the part that really matters. A kinsman redeemer could marry a childless, childless and widowed relative 
to preserve the name of the deceased husband through the first child born by the wife. So, Boaz meets all these qualifications. He's related to Ruth. He has the means to redeem the property that was lost and the resources that were lost. And Ruth doesn't have any children and her husband died, which means she is eligible for, her, for them to be married. He could marry her. And what, what they really want, the ideal situation, would be that she would have a son and carry on Killian's name. Or M Malon was her husband, actually, not Killian. Malon was her husband who had died. And if she had a son through Boaz, his, you know, it would be seen that he would have descendants. So that's Boaz, and that's how he qualifies. So he uh, accepts full responsibility for this. But there's a snag, because there's actually another guy out there who qualifies as well. And so Boaz isn't sneaky. He does the right thing, and he goes to find this other male relative who could be a kinsman redeemer as well. And before we move to the other guy, it's worth just noting very briefly that this kinsman redeemer is a picture of someone else who comes later on in this story. And if you want to turn to your partner, is there anyone uh, in this position later on in the Bible, not necessarily in the same situation, but who is in the position of a kinsman redeemer who goes about redeeming back um, a needy person who has lost everything and sort of pledging themselves to them and committing to them in a covenant relationship? I'll give you 20 seconds. Why don't you turn and say, is there anyone else coming up in the Bible that this could be pointing to? Hmm, what did you say, Jen? Jesus. Jesus. Okay, so here's Jesus and Ruth. There he is. He's not physically there, but in this story, God has ensured that we have a picture of what's coming. All right, so the final act uh, takes place at the city gate. So Boaz, like I said, he does the right thing, and he goes and brings this other male relative up to date on the situation. Cousin. There's a woman. Let me explain. What do you think? And at first, the guy is interested in buying back the property. But then Boaz reminds him that in being her kinsman redeemer, he would also be obligated to marry her. And then the guy changes his mind and said, well, I was just looking for the house with the 100 acres. I, I wasn't really looking to marry again or marry at all. And so he declines, and Boaz gets in there. And the picture of the sandal... Uh, Hannah, if you go to the next slide, the picture of him with the sandal was another what we would probably see as a strange custom where they take their sandal off and they are showing something of accepting this responsibility. And it doesn't really matter too much. Sandals were involved and men were exchanging uh, agreements and uh, Boaz takes his sandal off. <laughs> uh, they did not have what Birkenstocks back then. All right. Sorry, Lauren. Sorry, Lauren. So... This is what Boaz says so, so to the other male relative, and he's got witnesses as well, so he's making it official. Today you are witnesses that I have brought, bought them, bought, excuse me, from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, that was Naomi's husband, and his sons. I have also acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, that's, that's Malon, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Are you following? Okay. So that's the four acts, the four scenes. But then the book actually ends with a little bonus scene. Um, 
If you go to the next slide, slide there's a little bit at the end. And essentially, Ruth and uh, Boaz have a miracle pregnancy. Um, in the text, it said uh, the Lord uh, enabled Ruth to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then Naomi took the child in her arms. This is the mother-in-law, the grandmother, and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son. She had lost her two sons, and now she has a son. And they named him Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Which makes Ruth David, David's great-grandmother. Yeah. So the story begins with these women, childless, widowed, easy to exploit in a, in a difficult situation. And it ends with this miracle pregnancy, a new baby boy, and a fresh start, and full hearts for the whole family. So that's Ruth. So what should we, what should we be looking for? What, what's the message for us this morning? So I felt the Holy Spirit led me back to this conversation. There's a passage in particular I wanted to land on before we move into ministry time. And it's an exchange between Ruth and Boaz out in the fields together. And I'd like to read it to you, and then I'll give you a little bit of instructions. We'll spend some time in it, and then I'll move us into ministry time. Okay, so we need the passage between Ruth and Boaz. The next slide. So this is when she's been busy gleaning the barley, and she happened to be in Boaz's field. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the woman who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the woman. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars that the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? A foreigner. Next slide. And Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and your mother and your homeland, and you came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. When I was reading and reading back again through this, I suddenly saw the similarity between this exchange and the angel and Mary where you have this person who, by the world's eyes, is a person of no great means or significance, being visited by a very powerful figure, and being told that they were, that they were in favor, and that there was significance in their life, and that they were noticed and valued. 
And Mary has a similar reaction to Ruth, and they sort of both respond in shock, like, seriously, are you talking to me right now? You know, th there's, there's nothing that I can point to that I think would make you want to work with me or be in my life. So what I felt the Holy Spirit wanted us to do is just to rest on these, uh, this passage today. And what I would like to do is where I think this book is relevant for us today is finding Jesus there in that exchange and then finding yourself in that exchange. So Hannah, if you put, if you put that passage back up, let's, let's stay on the second part of it. So I'm going to leave a couple minutes of just space. I want you to read back through. I'm going to invite the Holy Spirit. And I want you to look for Jesus through Boaz speaking to this person in front of them. And then I want you to look for yourself, how you might respond to Jesus saying something like that. And if there's anything that was coming up in Ruth that's coming up in you. I want you to look for Jesus. And then I want you to look for yourself. Kind of putting yourself in the story and seeing how those characters and Jesus kind of fits into your life. And then we're going to do ministry time. Does that make sense? Okay. And if you wanted to look at it in your Bible, actually, if you go to uh, Ruth, page 127 in the Blue Bible, um, it's at the end of chapter... Well, it's in the middle of chapter 2 if you want to actually have a book in front of you and be reading, you know, if you want to hold on to it rather than just looking. So there's Boaz talking to Ruth. What is he saying? What is he bringing into her life, bringing into her identity, and how is she responding? What are the things that she's saying in response to him? So come Holy Spirit. We give you the next couple of minutes as we sit with these words from the book of Ruth. And as Jesus reveals himself to us, as Jesus sheds light on, on ourselves, our own hearts, our own lives, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would just highlight words, phrases, meaning in these verses so that where, whereby we can see you and ourselves more clearly. So I'm going to give him a couple minutes, and then I'll move into ministry time. Trusting the Holy Spirit showed you a little more of himself and yourself. And if you're new to our church, we have a practice of closing our messages with what we call ministry time. And instead of just finishing the message and saying, okay, get coffee, go back to your week, we actually um, carve out a little bit of space for us to respond to what we just heard. So we've heard from the Lord, we've heard from his word, and now we want to in response, create a little bit of space to just respond, to apply and activate any truth that came through. And so if you're new, we call this ministry time, and that's what we're going to move into now. It's about five minutes, and I will facilitate it for you and, and lead you into it. And you are completely free to respond uh, as much as you want or as little as you want. But we are taking this time out of respect uh, for the Holy Spirit and inviting him to help us apply and uh, respond and articulate what we've learned.